We are in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can sit down. Well, good morning. So great to be with you. My name's Cam. If I haven't met you, I would love to. Um, hey, you know something I'm really excited about this morning? I don't know if you caught this or if you know our worship team, but uh, we had Lauren Tyler, we had Jackson Tyler, and then we had Tyler Nivens. Like, what are the odds? Like, we have the Tyler trio leading us in worship, aside from the little hiccup at the end where the words got a little mixed up. But if we got in the recording studio, Lauren, that's gone. That's a race. We're good. The grace of the blood of Jesus covers that. Um, man, that's exciting to me. I don't know if I'm becoming a, a dad and being more boring and that kind of little stuff excites me, but here we are, man, the Tyler trio, the worship band. Let's go. Um, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Let's, let's pray this morning. You're like, wow, that was an abrupt change, but let's pray. Um, God, we love you, and we are so thankful for your grace. We're thankful for the moments that we get to share together this morning. Um, 
we're aware of your presence with us, um, knowing that you inhabit the praises of your people. So you're, you're not out there, but that you're, you're here with us this morning. And that's what we need above anything else. We don't need any more information, but we need to encounter you. We need you to breathe on these uh, verses that we read, and we need you to speak to our hearts this morning. So we ask that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, um, I usually am a pretty good sleeper, sleep pretty well. Um, but growing up, there was always one night that I could never sleep. It wasn't, it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't Christmas Eve either. It wasn't that morning. It wasn't the morning before March Madness started, but it was field day, the night before field day. Anybody remember field day? Hello, come on. Field day was the day. Like I remember going to sleep, not, not sleeping that night, and my body just shaked because I just couldn't wait for all the activity of field day. You know that feeling though, that like anticipation feeling? It's like almost better than the real experience. You ever like wanted something so bad and you got it, you're like, well, kind of the anticipation was almost better than that. You know what I'm saying? That, 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 that anticipation, like that night before a vacation or like that Friday, like at lunch when you're like, I got like two more hours and then it's the weekend, like that feeling, that anticipation. That's, that's essentially what Advent is. It, it's a moment to embrace the anticipation of life. It's it's to experience your ordinary average moments, but but look to the horizon with the hope of something greater, something to look forward to. Doesn't life like lose its zest when you lose your anticipation? Like when you have nothing to look forward to, you just kind of like, man, nothing will wear you out like that. So we pause just for a moment for these four weeks and we, we, we both look back, but we also prepare room in our own hearts and we look forward um, to, to the birth of Jesus, him coming into our story, but also to Jesus coming again to renew and rewrite and remake everything someday. That's what Advent is all about. So for the next four weeks, we'll be in this season. And what we're going to be doing is basically looking at four stories, four moments that lead up to the birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And what's really interesting is there's actually four uh, spontaneous songs that kind of break out. That's what we see. We'll start with Mary this week, but then as the next three weeks go on, we'll look at four songs in the wake of the birth of Jesus. So this morning, that's what we have. We have, we, we have Mary, the mother of Jesus, one of the most incredible women to ever live. And we hear her story, and then we hear her remarkable, almost bizarre response to what happened, her song to the Lord, to what people have called the Magnificant. I think I said that right. I'm not actually sure. I, I should have asked before. Is that, is that right? Mary's Magnif- Magnificant? Magnificat? That can't be right. It's got to be Magnificant. Okay, all right. All right. Mary's Magnificant is what, is what the people, the, the smart people call it. But that's what we see this morning. And we're going to see it in three distinct movements. Okay, we're going to see God speaks, God sees, and then we see Mary respond. So before, before we get into it, we have to understand what's happening in this moment. Mary um, and, and all the people of Israel, they, they've been waiting. It's been some 450 years that there has been no word from God. Israel is still gathering for worship, for celebrations, for festivals, but it's been hundreds of years since they've been given a prophet or a king or anything. God is seemingly absent. God is seemingly silent. They've been waiting so long, and they're actually starting to lose hope. The Jewish people, they're under the rule of Herod, who's been oppressive to them, and they've just been waiting, praying, pleading for deliverance. They've been asking and begging for a king to come and make everything right, who they would call the Messiah. They're waiting, they're anticipating, and they're praying that he would come. When all of a sudden, some five centuries later, after five centuries of silence, the heavens open up, 
and an angel descends to tell this poor rural family that the Messiah is coming, that the anointed one, the long-awaited king, he's on his way. Right? First, he appears to Zechariah and Elizabeth, and he tells Zechariah that it's, that it's through he and his wife, Elizabeth, who are old. They're getting up there in years. They're getting some gray hairs. They're a little too mature to be having kids, but he tells them that, hey, you will have a son, and he's going to be the one to prepare the way for this long-awaited king. And then that same angel, he appears to Mary, their niece, who's probably some 16 to 19 years old. She's engaged to a young chap named Joseph, a future, a potential, there's some excitement on the horizon. And she goes down to lay down for just a normal night of sleep. And she wakes up in the middle of the night, maybe after just getting done with some wedding planning. When all of a sudden there's an angel in her room. And the angel tells her that she's going to have a son. And that his name is going to be Jesus, which means God saves well, she responds like basically any other logical human being would. She goes, well, sorry, I know you're an angel, but like, how's that going to work? Because I've never been with a man. I'm no scientist, but that doesn't add up. And the angel responds. He says, the same spirit that brought life and light out of darkness in the story of creation is going to generate life in your womb. See, what's about to happen is God is about to bind himself to humanity through the conception and the birth of the Messiah. And what we see is, darkness, hopelessness, and silence. And then God speaks. The same God who spoke all of creation into existence by the word of his power and brought light into darkness, order into the chaos, harmony into the cosmos. It's exactly what he's doing. And he's doing it again. Isaiah chapter nine, we, we, we read this even this morning. It says this, the people, they walk in darkness, but they've seen a great light. On those living in the land of the deep, the darkness, a new light has dawned. And then in verse 6, it says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. See, God is doing it again. He's bringing life to death, light to darkness, and he's doing it through the birth of Jesus through a miraculous conception into a stable, like even like Lawrence said this morning, into a baby. And what he's really doing is he's going to recreate the entire world. He's going to flip the kingdom of the world on its head into a new thing that he's going to be called the kingdom of God. And I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible talks about it, right? It says this, the great rescue mission has begun. This is, this is the entryway of the story. And can I say something? This is, this is the thing that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. Every other religion is about man getting to God, but about man trying to be light, to see the problems in our world, but trying to solve it in and about ourselves, in and about our own strength, in and about our own stories and narratives and whatever that is. But Christianity is about a God who comes down, a God who himself is light and enters into the darkness. And see, every personal story has their own version of darkness. Every systemic story, every, every cultural narrative that we believe, it has a version of darkness. But the Christian narrative is the only one where God writes himself into the story, that he doesn't leave man to wander around in the dark to try to figure it out on their own, but that he enters into it with us and for us and where he speaks into the silence. And each of us here, we have our own personal version of darkness. We have our own personal stories of darkness, something that's happened to us, something that we've done, something outside of our control that has caused us hurt and pain and disarray. And I want to remind you this morning that God isn't out in the cosmos saying, oh, wow, that really got out of hand. But he's the God who is 
with you. That's what we celebrate Advent. That's our theme for Advent is that God is with us. And as we create space to experience more of his withness with us, he's the one who enters into the story, who's entered into your story and my story. And he's the only one who can sustain you. He's the only one who can actually offer the hope and the healing that you're longing for. And it's this realization that launches Mary into song. It's this realization that makes Mary just stop and start worshiping. See, notice Mary's response at first to the angel, right? It's it's afraid. It says she was greatly troubled. She's confused. She's wondering what is going on. And the angel, well, the angel says, hey, don't be afraid. Explains to her really simply, hey, no biggie. You're just going to give birth to the Messiah. You don't need to freak out. Okay, just relax, Mary. It's okay. And her response is really interesting. Her obedience is inspiring for sure. But it's interesting. I mean, can you imagine just like you go to bed, you wake up, you see an angel, and then it's like, what do you do? You just like go back to sleep and just like wake up the next morning. And you're like, what happened? <laughs> right? And that's, and that's interesting because that's her response. She goes, well, after the angel kind of ends the visit with, hey, nothing is impossible with God. She goes, all right, I'm ready to serve. Let it be done. Whatever you say. It's interesting to me. But the story, it continues. And it says, that the angel goes and appears to her cousin, Elizabeth. Keep it in the family. And she tells Elizabeth, hey, you're going to have a baby too. And, 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 and Mary knows this. So she goes to see Elizabeth and um, she, she walks over. She goes over to her cousin's house to say, hey, what, what, are you, what, what are you talking about? What's actually going on? After this trek, this cross-country journey to see her cousin, she walks through the doors. And right as she walks through the doors, the voice of Elizabeth booms out as loud as she's ever heard it. And she says, Mary, blessed is your womb. Mary, my baby just did a backflip in my stomach out of joy. And she says that your womb is blessed. You're the mother of my Lord. And and Mary, look at me, you are blessed because of your obedience. And then Mary just bursts out in song. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. I mean, I I, I try to encourage people like a lot, like it's kind of one of the things I try to do a lot in life. And I have never encouraged somebody and then just start singing right away. Like that is quite the response, right? Like that's a little bit of a shift from what she even said to the angel, right? Like, could you imagine if I just like went up to Dan and I'm like, Dan, you are one of the most serving guys I've ever met. And he was just like, glory to God. And I'd be like, that's weird. That's just like not socially acceptable or normal. It's, it's, it's a little outrageous. It's, it's outlandish. I mean, that's what I anticipated. That's what I expected was Mary to say, hey, yeah, Liz, that's crazy that you say that because the craziest thing just happened to me. Let's, can you pour me a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and like, let's, let's chop this up and talk about it. But she just starts singing. So it makes us wonder, right? Like what happened? The flip in the response to, to the angel, she says, I'm a servant of God, whatever you say. And then to Mary, she breaks out in song. So what happened? Well, well let's look at the, the passage really quick. It says this. In her song, she says, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. So she says that her spirit, her soul breaks into praise because God has been mindful of her. Or I love what the ESV, it says it this way, for he has looked upon me. The word mindful here, really what it means is to just look at or gaze upon or pay attention to. It's the same thing that David says in Psalm 8 when he says, when I look at the heavens and the stars and all that you've made, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you should care about him? Right? He says, when I look at everything you've made, when I look at the, the sun and the moon and the stars, and he doesn't even know like, that stars are like suns to other solar systems and galaxies, and it's like way bigger than you even think. It's not just like some cool light in the sky. But he looks at it all and he just says, 
the most incredible thing is that you look at me, that you see me, that you're mindful of me, that you're so big and transcendent, but yet so intimate and intimate in my own life. That's what Mary is experiencing. See, Mary is experiencing the freedom and the power of being seen by God. And it leads to extravagant worship. It leads to an irrational, illogical response of worship. So can I say something this morning? You were made to be seen by God. You were created to be seen by him. One of our deepest desires, one of our core needs is to be noticed, to be seen, to be paid attention to, to have a deep awareness that you matter, that you're worth being paid attention to. I mean, kids are completely unashamed about this, right? Like they're always just like, dad, watch, mom, look, look at this, grandma, have you seen me do that? Like they're just always asking you to, to look at them, right? It's this core need that they have that we still have, but we've just kind of allowed it to kind of change shape because we know that's also socially unacceptable. Just like, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. So it, it, it morphs, it forms, it looks a little bit differently. I mean, you should hear me take out the trash. Like I am gonna get all of Kayla's attention every time I take out the trash, right? Like I am grabbing the bag, I'm banging it against the walls. I'm just grunting and breathing hard because I wanted to notice me. I wanted to see, wow, my husband takes out the trash, right? Like I need it. I want her to see me. We all, and we all do that in a million different ways, right? We long to be seen by people. We long for it. So we post, we put stuff on social media. We say, look at me. We might not be saying, look at me, but we're saying, look at me, right? Or we, or, or we do what, what, what my wife and I call little drops. Like we just kind of little spiritual drops. Like, yeah, you know, I've been reading in my full Bible reading plan in 100 days, by the way. Um, we do these little spiritual drops, these little subtle flexes. We do these little drops. We do these little successful, my, my, my work is going really well, thanks. Um, all to be seen by other people. And it's a core need. It's a core desire that we have. It's a true desire and it's a good desire. It's how God made us. But like anything that leads to emptiness and loneliness and hopeliness and death, it's a good desire, our deep need, trying to meet it by our own resources. So we long to be seen by God, to be noticed by him, to feel his gaze and affection and acceptance of us. It's what we long for, but we need it from him. And it's crazy when you actually look through the scriptures, how many stories are launched into, how many, how many biblical heroes are actually launched into their story, their destiny, their purpose by just being seen by God. One, for example, is Hagar, right? In, in the book of Genesis, we see Sarah and her husband, Abraham. They've been, they've been promised that they're going to have a family, that Abraham would be a father to the nations, a light to the world, but it's just not happening. So Sarah, she takes, she takes her need and she takes it into her own hands. And she says, well, let's, let's do this. And she decides to have a child by asking her husband to sleep with her servant, Hagar. And after this happens, the shame and the bitterness, it eats away at Sarah until she finally just drives Hagar out. She says, you got to leave, you, you go. So Hagar takes her, takes her child. They run into the desert. And in a real similar story, the angel of the Lord, it appears to her to encourage her to say, hey, Hagar, you will not be alone. Your son, he also will have a great legacy. And a really similar response, she breaks out in song and she prays and she says, surely you are Elroy. You are the God who sees. You are the God who sees me. And being seen by God, it led to worship of God. Or we see it in, in the calling of, of Nathaniel, 
one of the, un, the you know, one of the not very famous disciples. But, but we see this in the story of Nathaniel, right? John chapter one, Jesus calls a couple new guys, Philip and Nathaniel. Philip has just experienced Jesus and he's inviting his boy Nathaniel to come experience him as well. And he comes up to Nathaniel. And he's like, hey, bro, I think we found the guy, the guy we've been waiting for, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's response, he goes, what good could come out of Nazareth? I don't know Missouri well enough to kind of throw some kind of random town under the, under the bus, but you know, whatever town you think is what good could come out of fill in the blank. That's what he says. He's like, what could come out of Nazareth? And then some, some solid evangelism, right? By, 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 uh, by Philip, he says, just come and see, just come and look at him. And Nathaniel gets there. And as he's walking up to the camp, Jesus goes, oh, look who it is. It's, it's an Israelite with no deceit. And Nathaniel's like, bro, what? You don't know me. Jesus goes, no, like I saw you before Philip called you, you were underneath the fig tree. And again, what a crazy response. Nathaniel goes, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. What a flip. He literally just, he, he goes from what good could come out of Nazareth to you must be the son of God. You must be the king of Israel. And even Jesus is kind of thrown off by it. He's like, bro, that's all I said was that you were under the fig tree. You're going to see like way better stuff than that, bro. I promise. But what is that? See what, see, what we might not know with our own Western eyes and ears as we hear that is, but, but Nathaniel, the, the fig tree would have been a place where he would have just been praying. It would have been, a, it would have been symbolic for the rest of God as he, as he came underneath the shade of the fig tree just to pray and meditate on the Torah and do these things with God and pray and seek out the Messiah. And what, what Jesus is saying, is saying, I've seen your prayers. I saw you. I saw you in the secret place. I saw you there. And his response is, okay, you are the son of God. See, being seen by God, it leads to extravagant worship of God. And I don't know about you, I have some of my own stories of feeling seen by God, and I know some of you do too. I think of the Wapitas who were in kids, who felt this strong call to go plant a church in a college town. They're like, I think we should do this. And they go and they're going to say, let's go talk to our community group leader and have him pray for us and talk about it. And they go to Jeremy and Jeremy goes, yeah, it's funny because we've been really thinking about moving to Columbia where the University of Missouri is to plant a church. And they're like, oh my gosh. And it's moments like that that you feel seen by God, that you know that he's for you, that he's with you, that he hasn't forgotten you. Maybe it's an encouraging word at the right moment, at the right time, right when you needed it, speaking to an insecurity that no one else knows that you have, but they encourage you in that. Maybe it's feeling the overwhelming presence of God in prayer when you're, when you're just going through a struggle and a hardship. Maybe it's getting a text message when, when no one knew that you were struggling or having a hard, a hard time and somebody texts you and you say, hey, praying for you. It's these little drops along the way that help us to be seen by God. Maybe it's even God breaking through and bringing healing or answering a prayer in real time. That stuff happens. And it all is just a reminder, not a new thing, but it's a reminder that God who sees, the God who sees, he's been seeing you and he sees you and he's with you and he's for you and he's not against you. It's these moments that speak into our doubts. See, along the way in the Christian journey, we can't help it, but, 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 but doubt starts to creep in. I do ministry full-time and I have moments where I'm like, is this a sham? Is this real? And there's these moments along the way that just speak into that and say, yes, I'm with you, Cam, I see you. It is real. It's, it, it causes maybe the theory of who God is to drive into our hearts to become a reality. And what that does is it creates worship in us. And what's interesting about being seen by God is that it's actually the exact opposite. The, the, the results and effects of it are the exact opposite of what happens when we're seen by anything else in the world, right? When attention comes 
to us in, in, our, in our world or in our normal lives, what happens is it, it, just, it just boosts up our ego, boosts up our pride. Anytime you get attention, it's, ne- it's rarely really good for you. But being seen by God, it does the exact opposite. It drives us low to humble worship. And that's what we see in Mary's spontaneous worship song, right? Verse 48 says this, he is mindful of those of humble estate. His mercy is those for who, his mercy is for those who fear him. He has brought down the rulers and lifted up the humble. He fills the hungry with good things, but sends the rich away empty. See, being seen by God, it actually reminds us of the proper posture that we're to have before God. One that bears our own nothingness before him, that you don't bring a lot to the table that you're not the hero of the story, that before we are people who minister and live life on mission, we are first people who are ministered to, that our posture is to be just that, that we need to posture and position ourselves to be the kinds of people who Jesus would minister to, that he sees us not when we're propped up and doing great with our spiritual success and achievement, but when we're low and humble, that his mercy isn't for those who have it figured out, but for those who are in awe of him and trust him and see that he's the only one who has it figured out. That he can be the only, he can only be a savior to those who need one, who are aware of their need for one, that he shows himself strong, not to the self-sufficient or the self-made person, but to those who need him. That he feeds the hungry, those who, those who know that in and about themselves, they do not have enough. To be seen by God, it humbles us in the most freeing and best kind of way. Because to be seen by God is to be completely seen by God. It's what makes it so powerful. It's because God who sees, he knows everything about you. The one who knows more about you than anyone else in this room. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he also loves you deeper and stronger than anyone else knows you. And he doesn't love, the reason it's so powerful is because he doesn't love who you're pretending to be. He doesn't love the perception that you're giving off, but he loves the real you. He loves you and he sees you. But oftentimes to to, to experience this love, we have to actually sit with who we really are. And that's the scary part. That's why we miss out on it so much. See, because to be loved, but not fully known or seen, well, that's superficial. But to be fully known and fully loved, well, that's, sorry, to be fully known and not loved, That's our greatest fear. It's why we hide. It's why we cover up. It's why we're not honest with ourselves and others. It's why we avoid vulnerability. It's why we avoid being authentic and real with people because to put yourself out there and to be rejected, that's our deepest fear. But to be fully known and fully loved is what it means to have a relationship with God, the God who sees you and knows you and loves you. And that's what Mary's tapping into here because it's right there where God wants to meet you. It's right where you actually allow him to see you. And I've told this story before, but in Brendan Banning's book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, he tells this story of when he was at a, an alcoholic rehab, uh, rehab center. And he says they were doing this group, basically this group therapy session when the facilitator kind of calls on this guy named Max. And he begins and he asks Max, he goes, hey Max, So what we do here, how long have you been an alcoholic? And Max Max responds, well, that's a bit unfair, you know? I I mean, I enjoy some drinks from time to time, but I'm I'm no alcoholic. And then the facilitator kind of starts to prod and ask some kind of 
pointed questions. And he says, well, how, how many drinks a day do you have? How many do you drink at work? Do you, do you store stuff in the garage? And, and Max, he just, he just won't budge. He says, sure, I drink, but I've got it under control, man. And the facilitator, he looks at Max and he says, well, Max, what happened last Christmas? And Max goes, well, I don't remember exactly, but I, I do remember I was a little bit thoughtless and careless with my daughter, my youngest daughter. So the facilitator, he, he grabs a phone and he calls Max's wife and he puts it on the speakerphone and he says, ma'am, um, hey, we are in the middle of group therapy um, and your husband just told us he was a little bit unkind to your daughter last Christmas Eve. Can, can you give me the details? I'm gonna read you the response. It says this in the book. A soft voice filled the room. Yes, I can tell you the whole thing. Seems like it just happened yesterday. Our, daughty, our daughter, Debbie, wanted a pair of earth shoes for a Christmas present. On the afternoon of December 24th, my husband drove her downtown, gave her $60 and told her to buy the best pair of shoes in the store. This is exactly what she did. When she climbed back into the pickup, her father was driving. She kissed him on the cheek and told him that he was the best daddy in the world. Max was preening himself like a peacock and decided to celebrate the whole way home. He stopped at the cork and bottle. That's a tavern a few miles from our house and told Debbie he would be right out. It wasn't a clear, it, it was a clear and extremely cold day, about 12 degrees below zero. So Max left the motor running and locked both doors so no one could get in. And it was after a little bit, it was a little bit after three in the afternoon when, in silence, yes, the guy said, the sound of heavy breathing crossed the rec, the rec room and her, her voice grew faint. She was crying. My husband met some old army buddies in the tavern. Swept up, swept up in the euphoria over the reunion. He lost track of time, purpose, and everything else. He came out of the cork and bottle at midnight. He was drunk. The motor had stopped running and the car windows were frozen shut. Debbie was badly frostbitten on both ears and her fingers. When we got her to the hospital, the doctors had to operate. They, they amputated the thumb and the fourth finger of her, of her right hand and she'll be deaf for the rest of her life. And at that point, in the middle of the group, Max drops to the ground and begins to sob hysterically because for the first time, Max was coming to grips with the truth of who he was. He'd been telling himself lie after lie after lie. That's not who I am. That's not what I've done. That's not who I am. And he could not see the truth that was within him. And until he saw himself for who he really was, true healing was impossible for him. And can I say, that's the lie of our modern culture, that as long as you can keep up a perception or reality, it does not matter because it's easier to lie to myself and say, ah, I'm not that bad or to compare to other people who might be a little bit worse than you and prop yourself up on them. At least I'm not like her. At least I'm not like him. But the problem is that it denies the deep longing of your heart to be seen completely and loved completely. See, to be seen by God is to be completely seen by God. He sees all of you. And in the same breath, to be loved by God is to be completely loved by God. He's the God who sees, the God who knows, and the God who loves you. So as we enter into Advent, let me close here. A couple of invitations and just some thoughts. God sees you. He knows everything about you. He knows, your, he knows your biggest fears, your biggest insecurities, the things you hide, the things that nobody else knows. And he loves you. I want to ask you, even, the, even, even this morning, how, how might he be inviting you to embrace his gaze? How might he be inviting you to embrace him looking at you? That's what Advent is about. It's about sitting in the darkness, anticipating the light. So maybe it's, maybe it's for you just to fast from being seen by other people. From now until Christmas, take a break from social media, make an intentional effort not to talk about yourself in conversations 
to better embrace the God who sees you that other people might not see you. Maybe those who are longing for a family and children are experiencing their own season of darkness. Maybe it's to participate deeper in the community of faith. Maybe it's to get real with a friend or a mentor and unpack the suitcase of your soul to confess your sins that you might experience being seen and loved by God. What is God inviting you into in these next four weeks that you might be seen by him and loved by him in a more real way? Let me pray.